Welcome to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast with Petra and Perks. This podcast is simple. We want to go beyond bubble bath wellbeing and think deeply about the world we live in and what it really takes to thrive. This includes things like activism at work, challenging the cult in culture, and of course, having brave conversations that lead the way in building a future of work that we want to be part of, including making benefits inclusive for all. So let's dive into our next episode. Welcome everyone to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast. I am excited about every episode, but I am particularly excited about this one. Uh, Me and our guest, we kind of met on stage where I got to introduce her and sit in on her talk uh, all around burnout. And my God, I learned a few things, even though I speak on it as well. So I thought I've got to get this guest onto the show. So um, we've got Subira Jones, AKA the corporate hippie, love it. Uh, and you do so many things. So she's um, a high performance coach. She talks about burnout. I mean, I went to see your TEDx live, which was good fun as well. Um, you have an incredible story, and I know you've won business awards and all sorts. It sounds like a roller coaster. Give us a little uh, sense of who you are and what you're up to. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Petra. I'm really happy to be here. We literally did meet on stage, and it's been incredible to be part of your network and call you a friend. So I often say to people, I'm obsessed with burnout and it's an obsession I am okay with because I lived in a four year long burnout cycle from completing my economics degree, my mum in a coma, to almost like sexist nine months later, to starting my first investment job four days after my mum's funeral and then waking up nine months later without any feeling below my hips. So I'm obsessed with burnout because it was obsessed with me, but I changed the dynamics on that. And so for the last few years, I have been working as a corporate burnout prevention specialist, specializing specifically in sustainable high performance, because so many of us want to achieve great things, do achieve great things, but at the cost of our health and vitality. And it doesn't have to be that way. So I, it's kind of fun, actually think about what the last few years have brought. So recently become a TEDx speaker, recently become a LinkedIn top voice for work-life balance, which is all fun and exciting. And given that entrepreneurship was not part of the story that I thought my life was going to entail, I became the young business person of the year, 2023, at the start of this year. So it's been really exciting, really fun. And I get to work with global brands and corporate companies to help them redefine what burnout means they can officially put out their fires and fireproof their careers and their companies for sustainable success. I mean, I love it so much. And um, you really do put a new spin on things. And and your story, I mean, you gave us a few hints there. We're going to have to go a little bit deeper into uh, the, the fullness of that story. But um, in this day and age, and with all the talk about well-being, mental health, you know, in a post-pandemic world, um, why do you think burnout is such a thing, like, in, in the first place? I would say burnout's been such a thing or a greater pervasive issue since the pandemic because... It's, highlight, it's been highlighted that it's been greatly misunderstood. So whenever I talk about burnout, I start at the beginning, which is being burnt out is not the same as being run down. They are two entirely different things. So I guess it's not hard for many of us to imagine, but using your laptop all day, eventually the battery will die. It's a machine. It's fine, right? We don't say, oh, this machine's rubbish, this laptop's terrible, throw it away. We simply put it on to charge. 
And that's what it's like to be run down. We are humans, incredible, but still humans. And when we're working in high intense pressure, industry, seasons, we're going to get exhausted, we're going to get tired, and we need to simply rest, recharge, and reset. On the other hand, burnout is when that laptop dies, but no matter how long you leave it on charge, it won't turn back on. Or if it does, it can no longer function at its optimum, and then it needs a factory reset. So there's two very different things. And what happened, particularly in the lockdown, with the national lockdown, with the mandatory closures of things that we would ordinarily use as an opportunity to rest and recharge, we are faced and confronted with the reality that maybe a lot of us aren't actually happy with the life we're living. We don't have a clear understanding of our purpose, sense of direction and autonomy. And we could no longer mask that with the nicer do things like go to gym or when you go to theatre, go on holidays and try and escape the insurmountable amount of work we have both in life and at work. And so I believe that after the pandemic, a lot of that became demystified. So what we were commonly taught as stress management techniques became widely ineffective because we no longer had access to them. And once we did regain access to them, they were no longer fit for purpose because the problem had outgrown the solutions we've been previously given. There's so much there. And it's like we've needed to evolve our well-being practices is what I'm hearing as the world changed. And some of us, you know, we're experimenting and we just didn't kind of catch up soon enough. Now, before I go into your story a little bit, the thing that like really landed with me in the very first talk that I saw, and I've seen you a few times since then, um, was this this slide that you put up that shows that you were doing well-being right right? So you were like, I was going to the gym four times a week. I was like meditating. I was like working my ass off, like all these things. Like, and on the face of it, you would be the picture girl, uh, for, um, you know, well-being and successful and, you know, hot and like doing all the things. Right. And then, and then you go in to say how, you know, it, you know, that wasn't what it was and you still crashed out. So just talk me through like the misconceptions, I guess, about what investing in ourselves or, or preventing burnout might actually be versus what it is. So a lot of people struggle when I say this, but burnout is not as a result of workplace stress alone. So the World Health Organization characterizes it as an occupational phenomenon, and it's not no. at all. Agreed. Burnout is the result of being chronically exposed to stress, and that stress can be both at work and in your home, in your personal life. And the opportunity cost of only focusing on the workplace stress factors Workload. is that it, disemp- it disempowers you. It completely disempowers you because it makes you feel like things outside of your con- control. So if you do have a heavy workload, you're thinking, well, how can I manage that? That's the organisation, that's my manager, that's just the way things go. I can't do anything to influence that, so you're disempowered. You think about it, you know, how your managers, your colleagues are treating you. Again, that's outside of your circle of influence, so you're going to feel disempowered. But also, if you only focus on the workplace factors alone, you completely miss the things that happen in your personal life. So I often say to people that stress is just like fire. It can be productive and constructive when well-managed and well-utilised. And we've all seen this in our day-to-day life. But stress, just like fire, when mismanaged, misutilised or worse, because we're such high performers, we fail to realise it's even occurring, has the potential to be catastrophic. So stress is like fire, then burnout's like a house fire. And Petra, I know you can say this a lot, but I have to say it. Imagine if your house is on fire and you call the fire brigade and their response is, 
we're really sorry we can't make it right now, but could you please just breathe in yes. and breathe out? It's so clear, this image, isn't it? And that's so much of what we see in the well-being space is like, let's do 10 minutes of meditation or a breathing exercise. And of course, these things aren't wrong, but for no, burnout yeah. specifically, it's exactly like that. Absolutely. So if you are run down, meditation, yoga, exercising, sleep hygiene, nutrition, all of those things are incredibly well-placed for someone who's run down. But when you're burnt out, you need to just learn to put out those fires. You need to be more pragmatic in creating sustainable solutions as opposed to short-term strategies. So they're entirely different things. And I love the fact that, you know, this whole podcast is about disrupting well-being because we have to. Maybe I'm jumping the gun, but I have to say, in terms of the really disruptive perspective I have, corporate well-being tends to not address burnout entirely because it focuses on those who are run down. It focuses on this, this symptomatic uh, manifestation of burnout as opposed to the cause and the root of why people are burning out in the first instance. And that is still more than the cultural aspect. That's definitely part of it. When you've got people in your organisation who are disempowered, who are burning out, they don't have the capacity to actually utilise the wellbeing tools that are being put in place because, number one, they know it's not going to help them. And number two, they just don't have the capacity. Their house is on fire. And so if I were um, a company leader, right, and I've just heard your explanation around like the, the types of um, influences that affect people and, and their burnout, um, you know, I would ask, you know, well, what's my responsibility? Which bit at work is my responsibility and which bit is theirs? And maybe there's no direct answer because it's a little bit of both. But what are your thoughts on that? It's definitely both. There's a two-pronged approach when it comes to corporate burnout. It is the organisational factors as well as the interpersonal factors. So, for example, it's both in the sense that you have to address your people as holistic beings. What happens outside of work will also affect them in work and vice versa. So whilst you cannot directly control their lifestyle and how they live their life, what you can do is put things in place, workshops, training, coaching, to help them understand how they can actually redesign their lifestyle to be more solution-focused, innovative, and achieve sustainable high performance at work, which benefits which benefits both individuals, both organisations and your employees to help the organisation thrive. But com- like managers and leaders that I've seen in many bigger organisations are very nervous about this, I think, this idea of redesigning your working life. And I think what the nervousness is, is this phrase of um, maybe even misconception around work-life balance. Because it's like, oh my goodness, everyone's going to clock off at this time and we're in a creative industry or a legal industry and everyone, nobody's going to do work, nothing's going to get done, is the fear, right? So this idea of redefining your working day Firstly, it's, it has to be a bit systemic, right? Like you keep, you're, yeah. you're talking about autonomy. You're talking about people having agency, I guess, to even do some of those things or put in practice some of the well-being tools. What do you say just to some of those, those fears? Like what could redefining a working day even look like? So the fear is misguided because those who truly have the capacity to do their work will show up and do their work. So I don't believe in work-life balance. I genuinely don't believe in work-life balance. I think it's like living life on a tightrope, which imagine just trying to walk along an Olympic beam. I know I can do it gracefully or successfully. 
So work-life balance is like living life on a tightrope and then each hand you've got home and you've got work and you're trying to juggle both balls and keep them up in the air whilst remaining on balance yourself. It's a futile and incredibly energy exhausting task. So instead I say create work-life satisfaction and it's more than semantics. Work-life satisfaction is about creating a personal life that you genuinely enjoy that you feel like you can show up in fully and be fulfilled so it naturally recharges your battery when you do get run down and satisfaction at work is seeing your career like a business you take full ownership of your career to think actually how do I transform myself from another number on payroll to an impactful and engaged invested member of this organization I'm part of so it's about creating a work-life satisfaction because if you don't have either, there'll never be a weekend long enough away from work or a holiday far enough from work where you feel like you've been able to switch off, to rest, to recharge, to show up and engage in the way that you need to. So it's a misguided fear entirely. And I think there's another misguided fear that if you invest in your people, then you're going to lose talent because they're going to go elsewhere. And the reason why I say that's misguided is because talent loss is not the same as talent transference. So talent loss happens when people are burning out, when they don't longer have the mental health, the physical health to show up at work and to do the work in the way that you hope and desire that they will do, you know, excelling at their full potential. That's talent loss. Talent transference, on the other hand, is if you have invested in your person, your people at work, and they decide that there's a you know another opportunity in a different industry, different organisation or life circumstances means they have to move, they're going to have enjoyed working for you so much and felt completely seen and invested into that they'll speak positively about your organisation and it will attract other mutual talent to your organisation. So that's talent transfer as opposed to talent loss. And I think that's another misguided fear that also happens. There's, you win either way. Right. And 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 like you, you've said at the beginning, it's about sustaining high performance longer term. Absolutely world of continued uncertainty change so many different elements absolutely and creating sustainable high performance workplaces means that you're going to constantly attract and retain talent that's going to enable you to have sustainable high performance sustainable high performance is not down to one person on your team an organization is as successful as talent it retains not the talent it hires so it's by looking at the bigger picture and not being fearful of each individual person on your team because actually maybe someone on your team may not be the right fit and by you investing in them and then being able to explore actually what it is they want to do, what they can do, they might be a better fit in another team in another part of the organisation or another organisation altogether, which means you can then make room to attract talent that actually will be a right fit for your team and help you exceed those goals and those KPIs that you have in place. So what I'm hearing is like zooming out and having a, a broader strategic vision um, which is actually really hard when people are in survival mode or kind Absolutely. of burnt out themselves or on the path Absolutely. to burn out themselves, which is what we're seeing uh, in lots of leadership groups, even well-being leads, right? Um, mm -hmm. So there's kind of two sections I want to go into. One is um, a bit about your story. And then I'm getting very excited because I want personal advice, please. And I think it will echo for other well-being leads or consultants or people in, in the space. Um, so before we go up to like, hey, how did you notice your own burnout and some 
of those um, sort of signs that you you saw that sort of completely changed your life. A question I like to ask is around the role that you played as a younger child. So I sometimes I have a theory that like the roles we play as younger children impacts how, where we end up later on, especially if we're on that quest of, of kind of authenticity and finding ourselves. What was the role that maybe you were given or that, that you had when you were younger? I am, was, prior to therapy, the quintessential middle child. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> what did that mean to you? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it's sort of like uh, the black sheep of the family, if you will, the one who sort of just was like, you know, I guess my thoughts and feelings don't really have a place because there are other people there. And it's really interesting because I was the youngest for a long period of time with much older siblings, so I very much played that younger sibling role. Then I became a big sister and had absolutely loved that role ever since I was five years old. There's not been a day where I would like think, oh, you know, why am I a big sister? That was never my thing. And I think that's because I was enveloped in so much love. Mm. And then I also had foster siblings during my most informative years when I was pre-pubescent. Um, we had two of the siblings moving who to this day I still call them my siblings because that's exactly who they are. It's been over, you know, 12 years of us living together so they're very much my siblings but that definitely had um an effect on how I saw myself and placed myself so I was someone who learned as a result that actually other people have it worse than you so mm. there's no space for you to really talk about your feelings because you've got two loving parents in a loving home and you've got two siblings two foster siblings who've not had the greatest start in life in comparison to you where you've wanted for absolutely nothing like, I don't even know, there's nothing I could have ever wanted both materialistically, but I think with that, my emotional, an emotional neglect came through because I discounted the value, the validity of my own feelings. Interesting. So if I'm honest, I would say that my first burnout probably happened when I was 17 years old, 16, 17, first year I sits on, because up until then I was on the Oxbridge route. That was very much championed by my mum. So all my extracurricular activities were yeah. academic. I wasn't the girl who did my gymnastics or ballet or something of that sort. I was always at the after-school clubs doing math, science, English. Saturday clubs doing math, science, English. If there were classes on Sundays, which there were, it was math, science, English. Wow. And then church in the afternoon and afternoon sessions. So I was always thinking, well, that's what I had to do. Plus my older sister went to Cambridge and she's 13 years older than me. So the only university I ever knew of was Cambridge. And naturally, that's where you go, right? And I was on track with that GCSEs, 15 GCSEs, A star to C, C because we had no science teachers and I didn't tell my mum. So she couldn't get me tutors because I just wanted a break. <laughs> but you had no <laughs> space to push back and you felt like you that was your track and that was the normal. Absolutely. So by the time we got to my first year of sixth form, I'd say that's when the first burnout, now that I know what burnout is, occurred sure. because I had lost all motivation. I didn't want to study anymore. I stopped doing revision, stopped doing coursework, stopped doing homework. I literally just show up to classes because I had to show up to classes. And that was it. So by the time I left sixth form, I left with three Bs. And I remember that day being so gutted thinking, imagine if I had revised, imagine if I had did coursework, imagine if I had homework and did the extra mile, what could I have got? Um, if three Bs is what I got with doing absolutely nothing. And so on reflection now, I realised that's the first point of burnout because I did care. 
about is, is, is it that the body said no or because I'm hearing and we know now from the 12 stages of burnout, right, that depression is in there, right, as one of the later stages. And it almost sounds like a flatness. And I think there's a lot of confusion for people about depression versus burnout. Right. And like that actually depression or that you said low motivation, that flatness could be right an indication. Is that kind of how it showed up for you? So I would say that depression is very much part of the burnout. So I say to people to often distinguish whether you're run down or burnout is to ask yourself two high-level questions. One, do I feel like I'm in control of my life? And two, do I have a clear, distinct idea of my purpose and direction? And I had neither of those. I didn't feel like I was in control of my life. I was just doing what I thought was expected of me, i.e. you go to college, you study, and you do your exams. That's what I'd been doing since I was eight years old. So I never really had an idea of what it is that I liked and whether I was a creative or not and so forth. And number two, didn't have a clear sense of directional purpose because I had studied economics when I was 12. I started studying economics at 12 years old. So I naturally did it for GCSEs. So mm-hmm. I naturally did it for A-levels. But whilst there was an academic interest there, it wasn't a, there was no sense of purpose or passion behind me. It was just something that, I enjoyed it was interesting and I could do it and was there at that age just like um I want to say judgment I I imagine your parents were very well intentioned but kind of like oh you've let yourself down you know that kind of vibe either external or internal I think leading up to it but not at the point of getting my results my mum was incredibly sympathetic because she saw how guided I was I think leading up to it though there was that comparison so between my older sister and I Mm. again it's 13 years yes she was my parents' first um, daughter to go to university. So they would see her up at five o'clock in the morning studying. And that was just not the way that I work. I'm someone who kind of absorbs information by osmosis and I have to be really energised to study, whereas my sister is a lot more studious and disciplined in her approach than I am. And that's the only point of reference my parents had. So there'd be a lot of comparison of, you know, your sister would be up at 5am doing this while you studying um, at that time. And so that played and fed into it, but not overtly because I was still, you know, still an adolescent trying sure. to figure out my place in the world, but, my place in the family. Yeah. I see, I'm seeing the links between like people in workplaces because they're like, oh, this is the way we've always done it. Or this is the way the industry is, or this is how the, how many hours it takes, right? And there's this kind of uh, idea that we all have to be cookie cutter into something, right? Rather than like, hey, you learn differently. You work differently. We're, we're at our best at different times. Absolutely. That, which is why I talk about work-life satisfaction, because that will look different to each and every one of us. Right. What it takes for us to be satisfied, both personally and professionally, will look differently. What it takes for us to get work done will look differently. So for example, I say to people, understand what your motivators are for getting work done. That's not necessarily your purpose. Purpose is your why, but your motivators is how do I get that work across the finish line? And so I know very much that one of my top motivators is leisure. If I don't feel like I'm relaxed or having a good time, it's hard for me to get the work done. A lot of people say, oh, work and reward yourself after. I don't work that way. I need to reward myself and then get the work done and then reward myself again. So that can look like getting up in the morning and at one point going to the gym and then the spa at the gym and then leaving there and getting home, starting work from 8.30 and then finishing work at 7. Bearing in mind, I was also up at 5 o'clock working on my business before I went full-time into it. So I knew that I had to understand what my motivators were to get the work done, which differs for so many people. And I think, as you said, 
in the corporate space, there's this idea that it has to be cookie cutter, although they'll say they understand it's not a cookie oh, cutter. Oh, that's, hey, disrupting well-being <laughs> is about challenging the bullshit. I'm going to say that out <laughs> they loud. They say it. Oh, don't they care. They say it, but they don't live by it at no. all. So this is why I say people, it has to be that work-life satisfaction because a good morning routine, for example, depends on who you are, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're a morning person or an evening person. So a good morning routine for a morning person is That's working out in the morning. I love a good morning. Yeah. <laughs> working out in the morning, getting like the more wall-powered tasks yes. done earlier in the day because by the evening, That's you me. just want to relax, chill, have fun. Like I know from 7pm onwards, if we're not relaxing, chilling, having fun, I can't do it. Whereas a good morning routine for someone who's a night owl is getting up in the morning, getting dressed, and getting to where you need to go. Yeah, ease in. Yep. And reverse they're schedule both really, Exactly that, because they're both really good morning routines, but it's dependent on where you thrive, where your power is at its highest. But we'll be told that, you know, you should start your morning with exercise. That doesn't work for everyone. So it really isn't a cookie cutter at all. Hence why you need to create that satisfaction for yourself. Because when you have that satisfaction in your personal life, you can have you can truly switch off because you're given into who you are and the things you love, including family, friends, activities. When you are satisfied at work, you're propelled to work on a Monday morning, not dragged there, kicking and screaming, going, I wish I was back in bed. You may have those moments, but they're not they don't characterize your entire working life. Got it. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, so I'm bouncing you around. Um, so you have that first burnout, 17. Of course, you don't understand what's happening. You're just like uh, probably feeling a bit lost and confused and people around you are like, oh, teenagers, right? Um, and so where do you pivot to? Like, what's your path? And then bring us up to like uh, the your, your own crash points, I guess, later on that really have set you on the path to help others. So after A-levels, I went on to study economics at university. Again, it's just all I knew. It's the path, yep. Might as well do it because it's the only subject that I actually know. So I did that and I got to my final year of university and it was February 2015. My older sister called me from London. I was in Wales to let me know that my mum had a heart attack. Sounds cliche, my mum was my best friend at that point and my world had fallen apart underneath me. So I remember looking at my best friend once I got the ability to speak again and said, look, if I have to go through this shit, there needs to be a fucking rainbow at the end. Sorry, yes. You I can swear on this podcast. Yes. There needs to be a fucking rainbow at the end of this storm. Yes. There needs to be. I just knew intuitively that despite what happens, things will have to work out well at the end. So I think that goes to show that that was just my mindset anyway, even in the midst of adversity, naturally thinking it has to get better than this. This is not the final destination or the end of my book. So I completed my economics degree with my mum in a coma and I wrote my dissertation. I love saying this because I am a former stress addict. So the fact that I did this still gives me a buzz. But I wrote my dissertation, my socio-economic dissertation, 10,000 words in 48 hours, handed in one minute before the deadline and got a first class on it. Stop. That's not, that's not natural, just saying. just saying, just <laughs> saying, yeah. I live us mere Us mere mortals <laughs> cannot. <laughs> I mean, we, we, I think people do do some pretty big thriving uh, in, at, to deadlines, don't we? Um, but then if we don't recover, my God, it can, it can hit us in places. Okay, so you get, you hit 48 hours, you get it, you get a first, like, stop. Okay, we're going to talk about that offline. Um, <laughs> while mom is in a coma, so where does this yeah. take you? So I had a crash from all the energy drinks 
I had drunk and just the emotional pressure of, oh my God, mom's in the coma and I've done this. And then I knew I wasn't ready for the real world, as in going into a graduate job like what my colleagues were doing, going off into a big four or some sort of management consultancy role. I just didn't have it in me whatsoever because by then my mom was really neurologically disabled, paraplegic and blind. So the woman, the matron that I once knew, she was no longer that um, as a whole. In spirit, she definitely was, but in terms of who she was in front of us wasn't that so I threw myself into waitressing working double shifts and triple shifts in a rather notorious um restaurant bar with colorful clientele which gave me the perfect distraction to ignore the fact that my life was falling apart and it's still a stress addict thing right you're saying triple shifts like it's not like oh oh, let's go light yeah okay absolutely I had become so accustomed to the heat of the fire and I think I always have done naturally. I've always thrived under pressure, but there became a safety in feeling like I was overachieving or just having the heat of the fire around me. I, I say to people all the time, I am a former recovering, maybe still currently stress addict. So at the time I was working double, triple shifts and I was also volunteering at the Fair Trade Foundation as a research and policy volunteer just to keep the prospects open. Because, you know. Yeah, yeah. At this point, I thought I wanted to be an economist because that was the next progressive step, right? That's what you do. Sure. Um, ridiculous, because nine months after graduating, I went to bed with the flu, and the next morning I wake up and couldn't feel anything below. No, I've jumped all... No, nine months after that, I ended up getting sepsis. There were so many... It was really interesting. Anything happened in a nine-month succession, I realised that was my burnout cycle. I would do great and then nine months and then burn out. So that first burnout after I graduated, I actually woke up with sepsis on my 23rd birthday. And you're, that, what's interesting is you, because everyone's different, but you really have physical symptoms. Absolutely. I think because the emotional yeah. and mental had been running high for so long, I was in that perpetual state of fight or flight emotionally and mentally because if I'm honest, although I had a great childhood and wanted for nothing, there was an element of depression all the way through mm. of trying to figure out where I fit in. You know, my feelings aren't really being validated. I don't know how to validate my own feelings. We just, express just existed. You're, you're suppressing is one of those things. I had no emotional, yeah. no emotional expression whatsoever. I didn't have yeah. the tools to do so. So I would constantly suppress it. So I think the physical manifestation is because my body had... Listen, if burnout is a laptop that can't turn back on, then the immune system is the hardboard, which is completely fried. My immune system was really struggling. So the first point in call, the first sign, if you will, was sepsis. And I spent seven days... Kind of a big sign, but there you go. (laughs) Just just a little bit. I mean, I thought I'd be out of hospital that day. I hadn't realised the scope of how sick I was, which is probably also part of the sepsis, that sort of feverish delusion. Mm. So I was in hospital for seven days fighting for my life. I won, so, you know, didn't, death couldn't really stop me, could it? So I carried on on that same sort of trajectory going, well, you know, if I defeated such this, it's not I'm that bad, I'm a superhero. Sure. sure. And, and I want to highlight for the audience, like, because as a coach and a therapist, like the amount of people, and you must see this in your courses and workshops, who have like the, their body is going, hello, right? It's like, wake up, red flags, like all the things, right? And we still just carry on. It's just like this habit is so ingrained or this belief system, or I don't know what you would put it to, but no, even when our body is, is in those extreme states, we keep going. 
And I think one thing I can say retrospectively is when we tie our self-worth and self-values um, on who we are and the productivity and the outcome. Achievements. Completely, the accolades, the achievements. When it's so tied into our self-worth, we won't allow ourselves to stop. Because if we do stop, who are we? What value do we have? And that was a really uncomfortable truth that I had to face. Oh, I got chills. It re- I mean, I relate so much because I, very different childhood, very different background, but that idea that um, achievement was the only thing that would keep me alive, which was interesting because I was in addiction, depression, you know, uh, uh, um, those sorts of things, suicidal ideation. Uh, and I thought, well, if I just keep moving forward, then I can't go to that dark place, right? And Absolutely. so I did start um, kind of mixing in my self-worth. Like, I matter because I can do this yeah. degree. I matter because I wake up and show up. And, you know, and it really did, like, don't. this is where I, I want to challenge people in the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast. I do not regret that. Because mm. I needed to work overtime as a young parent, as someone kind of coming out of a cult to get any kind of platform or head start, uh, to just get e- even with other people, right? Yeah. And, and, and what they had. Um, but it's not sustainable, right? And so the recovery tools, the well being tools that we used in those times, and for me, it used to be a three minute guided meditation. It used to be going to recovery groups, and, and that was an investment in myself, right? Yeah. Um, but then we get just get these habits, don't we, of survival? And so, and and this is where I want to pick your brain in a minute. Once we once we move through the story, um, is like so many of us well being leads. We we've got these habits ourselves, right? Um, so you get sepsis, and then there's another wake up call, right? So you said you lose feeling, and like what was that? So about February 2018. So by then, the year after having sepsis on my birthday, my mum then died the day after my birthday the following year. And I was just about to start my first real job in the investment world as a as a reporting analyst, right? So I was like, yeah, I'm about to be 24 with a real job. And then my mum suddenly passes away. And I, like a clever cookie, because my life was falling apart and I wanted to feel like I had control over something, decided to start my first investment job four days after my mum's funeral. Despite my future employers telling me to take compassionate leave and me telling them, I haven't earned compassionate leave. I can't take that. I started four days after the funeral. And then created the perfect work-life balance that you alluded to earlier of going to gym six times a week, sometimes twice a day, because actually I was an insomniac. So because I couldn't sleep, I would just go to the gym instead. And you don't want to sit um, with your feelings then is what I'm at hearing. Oh, I'm yeah. just constantly running. And a lot of us outrun our uh, problems. I say people, take off your trainers. You can't outrun the house five. You can't outrun the problem. You need to just put it out. Ooh. But that's what I was doing. Gym six times a week, sometimes twice a day coupled with a history of disordered eating with that so being plant-based was pretty easy because between the disordered eating history and the fact that the anxiety was so rife that my my digestive system was completely messed up it was easily plant-based meditate religiously because you know i'm a millennial that's what you're supposed to do right Mm. right yeah and then as an investment analyst when the reporting season was over with my new income i made sure that i was on the but I start all inclusive result with the girls, you know, almost every quarter. So life was good, Perfect. right? Work life balance in a nutshell. You've got it. Yeah. Well being team would have been so proud of me. Yes. However, nine months of and it's so interesting that it is and it has been a nine month cycle. Nine months of that perfect work-life balance. I went to bed with the flu and I woke up the next morning and couldn't feel anything below my hips. 
and then started experiencing sporadic immobility and sporadic blindness. But, you know, that wasn't good enough. I decided that I needed a new job because I became incredibly paranoid that my colleagues were going to start to think that I was faking it, which when you have an invisible disability or chronic health condition, you can feel really, again, disempowered. You can feel inferior. Mm. And, yeah, it's very vulnerable. You think, well, if people think, are people thinking that I'm making this up? So which says beautiful. to me also that your image is everything, right? Like Again, how you're my presenting. Was tied yes. To yeah. you know, being an investment analyst, to having it all together, helping out other people. I was helping out my colleagues in the office. So I feel like the sort of lifestyle coaching happened long before I actually became a natural lifestyle coach in my journey because sure. my colleagues would come over to my desk and just be like, Spare, that's what's going on in my life. And it felt rewarding. It felt really rewarding yeah. to be able to help them. So I think that's what helped me in the future then figure out what part of my purpose was. But at the time, I just didn't want anyone to see that I was drowning in plain sight. So I left and went to an asset management company, got a pay package increase and less complex work. And I thought I found my solution. And almost 365 to the day that I woke up with no um, mobility, I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and realized that was the ultimate, the ultimate burnout and the ultimate wake up call I needed to go, right, this clearly is not working. We need to find a new solution. And while many people have lots of thoughts around multiple sclerosis, um, I went to a Gabor Mate talk uh, in person, live in London uh, last night. Um, and he mentioned it as one of the illnesses that are immune system related, stress connected, right? So Absolutely. there's lots of schools of thought now that there's this real thread of connection. So you completely crash out. Um, I know our audience will be interested in knowing the what next. So how did you change your life? And and if you could just give us like some of the, in hindsight, some of the key elements that helped you, I guess you've woken up, but where do you go from there, right? So the first point in call and this might surprise a lot of people was I needed to get my finances in control. I needed to create a level of financial flexibility. And because I was so in the depths of depression, I had decided that retail therapy was easier than actual therapy. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had £8,500 worth of consumer debt, which I knew I could not resign and go into universal credit, unemployment benefits from the government, having that much debt outstanding. So the first point in call January um, 2019, before I even got the official diagnosis of February of that year, was to create a plan to pay off the majority of that debt so I could afford to take some time away from work. I think the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of people when life happens or they're experiencing burnout is, oh, I've got to quit my job and leave. And it's honestly the worst thing you can do because it's like adding gasoline to the fire. Don't do it. Because when burnout occurs, the first thing that happens is we lose our sense of agency and autonomy. We need to start putting things in action to take that back. So actually creating that financial plan to pay off that amount of debt helped me to feel like I had some control over my life again, which was really important at the time. Can I check if you got help with that? Like, did you seek help or was this still quite like, let me handle it? This was still let me handle it. I did not seek any help initially. This was sort of all under the radar. I didn't even talk to my family about it. They could see that I was ill on some days, but I never spoke to them to the extent that I was really wow. struggling. The anxiety that was kept me locked up in my room, they just thought I'd become recluse and really antisocial, but I was just drowning in plain sight, not knowing how to ask for help because I've had years of sort of invalidating my own feelings. Plus, I lost my mum, but my dad lost his wife. My sister's lost mm, their Everyone's well. experiencing so, this in a different absolutely. way. So it felt too selfish to even extend in that way even though they've watched me almost die from sepsis and they've watched me 
you know, struggle to walk on days or even see. So not really selfish to ask. So I was still doing this all myself. But on reflection, I think because of the type of person I was and the fact that I needed to feel like I had some level of control over something, I'm very grateful. Similar to what you're saying before, I'm grateful for that season of my life. I wouldn't do it again the same way now, but I'm grateful for that season of my life. So sure. I paid a £7,500 in five months. So I could afford to go on universal credit. From there, I became obsessed with burnout. More specifically, the fat stress. The fact that stress has in our immune system in our body. So I'm really interested about the talk you went to last night. We'll definitely talk about that yeah. after <laughs> that. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of conversation about how much stress and MS was linked to a point when I brought it up to my consultants. They were like, yeah, I think there's some sort of connection there. But, you know, just yeah. take this medication. I'm like, no, because... Adjust your life as well is how they would put it. Mm. Yeah, and they wanted me to adjust it with, like, exercise and my diet. And I knew that wasn't the answer because at that point, I was already going to a gym, like, you know, six times a week. It had slowed down with the immobility, don't get me wrong, but I would still find my way there. And I already had a predominantly plant-based, clean and nutritious diet, so I knew that wasn't it. But what became very apparent was after I had a stressful event in my life, I'd have an MS relapse. So apparently so that I realised that this is more than just correlation. There has to be causation here. So I became obsessed with a school of thought called psychoneuroimmunology, which gives scientific credence and mind-body-soul connection. I thought, I can do something here. If I redefine MS for multiple sclerosis, something that medical professionals don't truly understand, to multiple stress again i can take that back into my control oh, wow. which was yeah. imperative and so i started thinking okay what other stress others in the consumer debt can i get rid of in my life so i started taking a look at what are my core values like what do i actually want to do what's the type of lifestyle i actually want to live so before i left the investment industry first time ever i created a vision board blue sky thinking vision board like absolutely insane ideas that I didn't know how I'd make them come to reality but I was at rock bottom and I needed to just allow myself give myself permission to dream big because up until that point there'd be times I'd be on the phone at the corner of the road at three o'clock in the morning to Samaritans just like needing someone to talk to I was constantly having suicidal ideations driving to work thinking just how easy it would be to these beautiful country lanes and just Miss that turn and over ever so slightly go careening over the side. Like that's where I was at. So I needed to just give myself permission to dream because I knew there was something in me. I didn't want to give up. That there was more to life. That there was a fucking rainbow at the end of that storm. I knew it was there. So even at that moment, so I created this vision board alongside paying off the debt, thinking, oh well, when I pay off the debt, my future's gonna be so bright, right? I can afford to make some of these things attainable. Yeah. Delusional, absolutely delusional, but I'm grateful for it. So I eventually resigned from the investment industry. Then I did a certified um, holistic health practitioner course just to really understand the different alternative and complementary approaches when it comes to um, medicine in particular, because I didn't want to take MS treatment at that point. I knew it wasn't the right course of action for me. Then I, what did I do next? I was ready to, I saw an end to the MS symptoms because I created what I called the burnout free lifestyle. So I put out those fires, I uh, created a lifestyle that was stress mitigating, fulfilling, because I dared myself to dream about the type of life I wanted to live, a life aligned with my values and, you know, a sense of purpose, which gave me a North Star. So life started to feel a bit more fulfilling. So I went from existing to living because it was being more intentional with it. But lastly, I started implementing fun back into my life. So for example, I say to people, pole fitness saved my life. I was so 
involved and concerned of not falling on my head whilst I was on the pole. I didn't have time <laughs> to think about my life was falling apart. So just adding that extra bit of fun into my life really helped me to start re-engaging with people socially and feeling like actually, although I've lost a lot of my ability, sometimes sensation of feeling, I still have the strength to enjoy this. And I realised the more enjoyment I had in my life, the less stress I had in my life, the stronger I started to physically feel. And within five months, I saw an end to the MS symptoms without any medical intervention. And I went, right, okay, time to head back into the corporate world. Time to go back to the investment industry. And Uh-oh. it was virtually impossible, virtually impossible, Petra, to get a job with this new acquired disability. So I started um, reaching out to the CEOs and CIOs of the investment world saying, hey, look, let's have a conversation. Because at that point in time, the unemployment statistics for those without a disability was 5%. But the statistics for those with a disability was like 55 plus percent at the time. And I was outraged. And I was like, this is not fair. We've worked so hard in our careers and due to ultimately burning out, acquired this disability. And it's not unique because I think in numbers may change now, by the time 83% of dis- people with disabilities weren't actually born with a disability. So many mm. of us acquire a disability at different stages in our life. And so it's not that we're not capable of doing the work. You just may not have the capacity to do the work in the same way. And so I started researching on that, researching about burnout, and realised actually it's just a pervasive problem in general. Because 2019, before we knew about the pandemic, 54% of working days were lost due to stress-related ill health. So it was showing up anyway. Massive. And it's just, been, it's just more front and centre, isn't it, these days? Absolutely. Because since 2022, so post-pandemic, world opened back up again, the percentage of working days lost due to stress-related ill health has increased 84%, which goes to show that actually those lunchtime yoga sessions, bringing dogs into the office, like laughing yoga, all the things that feel good and that are great when you're just a little bit run down are ineffective when it comes to burnout because we're seeing an increase to 84% of days being lost despite these initiatives being put in place. So it's so important that actually if we're going to identify there's a problem, we actually give it the correct solution. So uh, I was just thinking about a workplace I was in once where they brought dogs in and I'm not a dog person. And one person had like a scary dog and I was like, how is this good for my well-being?" Anyway, um, not all dogs are created equal, just saying. Um, so in, in the final bit of our conversation, I mean, there's so much here for people to think about, you know, their what their body is telling them, what are their wake up calls and not just like goal setting, which is, you know, you, you talked about your vision board. I often think about like, how do I want to feel, right? How do I want to feel in a year? Right. Um, do I want to be enjoying the journey or is it always about the destination? And so how I follow the opportunities of what that looks like can be quite different, Mm -hmm. which is very different than I must get this grade for this thing. I must achieve this job and this status. Right. So asking yourself different questions, if you do have access to a a coach or someone like that, that can be useful. Um, I know a lot of the people listening are helper types, let's put it that way. So whether they're well-being professionals, whether they're um, therapists, coaches, or people interested in this topic are often like helper types. And it could be they have a family member that struggles and, you know, they're the people that people go to, right? And I think there's a real high risk of burnout. I think burnout was originally coined for helping professions, right? Like doctors, social workers, nurses, that sort of thing. And so, 
right? So we talk about compassion fatigue. We talk about, you know, and so I'll, I'll relate this to, to myself. I love my job. I've, as you know, I've craft, crafted a business. I, I enjoy what I do. But there is this insidious thing about like, when you love what you do, um, you can be like, you know, there's this, the, the, the insidious bit is the people pleasing bit um, and workaholism disguised as helping others and everybody needs me, right? Um, and so all of those things may be true, uh, but we are very much at risk of, of burnout. And I will still find that I have a cycle of, I think there's a longer stretch of time between the crash points. And I think it's, um, I'd love your advice actually, is it rundown or is it early signs of burnout? So let's say every three to five months, I will have two days where I will have the biggest headache and I will vomit. Sorry, guys, this is going dark. Um, and I won't be able to even drink water. Like my body will just be like decimated for 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And it's the only way in a way that completely forces me to be horizontal and like just watch some TV and do nothing, right? Um, and I'm saying this, like, I'm not proud of it. I wish I was like ninja level and never got to this point, right? Um, but I do get to this point and I do get to, um, so so firstly, what are your thoughts on rundown versus like, ooh, a bit of a burnout warning sign? And then I'll dive in. If you continuously run down, then you can get to a point of burning out. So for example, if that laptop continuously dies and you notice that actually the battery time's getting shorter and shorter between, eventually it's not gonna turn back on. So it's really important to recognize when you're feeling run down before you get to that point, because your body will tell you. So for example, I get seasons where I get really tired. I love what I do. I have a very clear sense of direction and purpose. The work I do fulfills me. And I do believe I'm in control of my life. I get physically tired because I know, as you said, it's, it's insidious. There are times where a thought will come to me at three o'clock in the morning and I need to get up and I need to execute that thought there and then but then what I'll do is allow myself to go back to bed for maybe seven o'clock because I won't start meetings till maybe 10 a.m so I'll give myself the opportunity to then rest once I've executed so it's working in a way that you're allowing the laptop to not overheat to not overcharge and making sure that you're recognizing those signs much earlier on and the signs can literally be physical exhaustion or maybe you're being a little bit more forgetful because you're cognitively oh, tired yeah. yeah so it's just those small bits that it's just making sure that in your lifestyle in general, so I say to people, true burnout prevention is a lifestyle. In your lifestyle in general, you're building those points to recharge. Like you're intentionally building in those points where you're doing something that is so fulfilling, that is active and both passive rest. So it becomes part of your lifestyle. So you're not overthinking it because it decreases those moments where you get to that point of your body going, please just sit down, Petra. Please just let us, please let us just go on standby, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do, I love how you talk about fun and joy. And I think we both work for ourselves. So we we have created or can create that flexibility. And there's certain seasons that are busier because of the Absolutely. way things go. But um, I do, like I've got a, a holiday plan for November, for example, because October is like a really busy month, right? So, so kind of being able, to put those factors in. And I guess the learning for me was, you know, what are those early, early signs? So I might get like a metallic taste in my mouth when, and, and like you said, forgetfulness. And I'm noticing that these are the signs before getting to that crash point. And the temptation is, oh, grab the chocolate, um, don't eat well, like, oh, watch mindless TV and like do the unhealthy things. And of course that kind of um, moves you quicker to that full crash point, right? And so now I'm like, ooh, 
make the juice, you know, you know, if you start feeling those early kind of symptoms, like get some early nights, like talk to the right people, say no to a few things, right? So there's a couple things. Um, what do you think as we, we kind of close off and I, I want people to know where to find you and stuff, uh, are the things specific for that helper type that, that they should just be thinking about or get started with? It's going to sound really cliche. It's going to sound really cliche. Cliche is often true, isn't it? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) You can't give from an empty cup. So if you truly want to help people, if part of your purpose is to create impact and long-lasting impact and help those around you, then you have to make sure that you're giving from your abundance, your overflow, which means you have to put yourself first. You have to ensure that your proverbial cup is constantly running over so you're not giving from the dregs. Because you can't help anyone when your own house is on fire. The best way to help put out a fire in someone else's house is to ensure your own house is on fire. It is not selfish to prioritize yourself when you're working and helping other people. It's imperative. Beautiful. Um, and I ask this question to every guest, so let's see uh, if, if there's anything to, to build on. But already you've left us with a powerful message. Um, what do you think is the most radical change that we need when it comes to well-being and the focus on mental health that we see in the world today? That stress is like fire. And then be pragmatic and putting the fires out. Sometimes we do things that feel nice, but they're actually not moving the needle. So I'm really honest with organizations that if you want to prevent burnout in your organization, which is the only way to achieve sustainable high performance, then you need to move forward from doing the things that just sound good that take the well-being checklist because corporate well-being does not actually prevent burnout. Ooh, I think we found the title to the show as well. Uh, Subira, thank you so much. Where can people find you? I know you do work with companies and you're a speaker and all sorts, and you've got a podcast as well. Let us know uh, some of where people can find you. The best way to find me is the corporate hippie. The corporate hippie is the best way to find me for any and everything. If you All just want channels. to have a virtual cup of tea Beautiful. or you want to learn more about the work I do and how we can work together, the corporate hippie. Got it. Thank you so much for your time, your your authenticity. I learned something else from you every single time we meet. Uh, I count you a true friend and I appreciate you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you got loads of ideas on how you can be the change and disrupt well-being in your world and your workplace. If you want to hear any more about our guests or the resources we mentioned, check out our show notes. And of course, find your workplace benefits at perks.com and all your strategy or training needs at petrabelzebor.com. I'm so excited for future conversations. Please do join us for the next episode of Disrupting Wellbeing with massively interesting conversations and guests who will give you practical ideas to be the change you want to see in the world. See you next time.